Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. I don't know who needs to... Well, I'll have to go first because you've got a mouthful of tea. But then do I want to go first or do you want to? No, you go first. Do you know what's terrible? It's the way that you and I pretend we're not looking at what each other's got and I can I know, see what you've I've got and I'm excited. of yours and you've seen mine. You would be familiar with mine. I am. Did you cover it? Yep. Okay. Well, I'll do a different story. No, oh, no do I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. because it's There's a lot of things about this story that get me. Yep. Well, for me, it was with this story, it got into the public's mind, like people embraced this story so much and the family and the missing person. Um, So we're going back to 2011, July the 15th, a young man by the name of Daniel James O'Keefe. He was 24. He was a nice looking young man. To me, he looked like if if you're going to make it into a movie, you would want someone who looks like Josh Groban. His boy next door. Yes, Josh mm. Groban, but younger. Mm. Yep. You raise me up. Oh no, that. No. So I can't. I feel what? like we no, can no, only no. we can only do Edith Piaf from now on because <laughs> it's my favourite. He went missing. Okay. Uh, from his parents' home in Highton, which is near Geelong. Uh, about nine o'clock on a Friday morning. And mm. at first his family thought that he might be living with homeless people because he was a very empathetic, very caring young man. And He just walked off. Yes, as far as they knew. He went Gone. and they thought it is a possibility that he may be living with people on the streets mm-hmm. in order to understand how they live a lot better. Am I right in saying that he had spoken about homeless people before? I think he had, yes, yes. to his parents. Sure. Yeah, um, There was a bit going on in his life. I think he was mm. about to start a an apprenticeship as a carpenter. So he's only 24, he's young. Um, his family and his girlfriend made a plea publicly for information and it was just very touching and I just remember whatever they did, however they ran their social media campaign and, and the way they spoke to, you know, used the media to help them try and find him, they did it very well because you literally couldn't turn anywhere in mm. Melbourne over the time he was missing and not know about this young man and that he was missing. And they missing. were out and about from the get-go. Yes. They were very early. Yeah. And they were upset. It was hard not to feel sad for them. They said they were absolutely sure that Daniel wouldn't have harmed himself. He had had some depression, but they just didn't want to entertain that thought. Uh, Sergeant Adam Forehan asked people working at homeless shelters to keep an eye out for him there. And he also said that Daniel might be trying to assimilate with homeless people to try and understand how they exist. And he had enjoyed speaking to homeless people in the past. Now, Daniel's mum, Lorraine, said that Daniel had always been interested in the downtrodden and unfortunate. He was sensitive and caring, just a beautiful young man. There'd been no confirmed sightings of Daniel and there were no suspicious circumstances. I just, what I'm loving at this moment, Chanel, is the way that you, and you're physically what? doing it, you're crossed your arms over yourself because I know you want to jump in. I know so many because things about you this do, story. Yeah. And you're, you're physically like well, he restraining had a, he, yourself. The only thing I was going to say at that point was, I'm pretty sure he had a girlfriend. Yes. Yes. Yes, he did. But she was somewhat, and I could be wrong, in the background. Ah. I feel like we I saw the family that. quite a lot. Yeah. And... Perhaps the girlfriend wasn't so much in the in the. I don't want to say limelight because okay. it's not. Yeah, showbiz. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to think who I saw. 
speaking about him, I feel like the mother was probably and the sister. at the front. And yeah. the father, his dad, Des. Now, his dad was the last person to see Daniel and uh, he was pretty proud of the fact that Daniel was about to start this carpentry apprenticeship on the following Monday mm-hmm. and his dad said he might have been feeling a bit overwhelmed about that, as any young person would do starting a new job. Mm-hmm. He'd recently opened a martial arts academy in Werribee and he lived between his parents' house and his girlfriend had an apartment in the Docklands. Susie Mansfield was her name. Okay. So first up, police tried to track his mobile phone, but they couldn't because it had been switched off. And then they got particularly worried because he had a medication that helped him sleep and he didn't have his wallet with him. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He was described as 180 centimetres tall. Is that six foot in the old money? Tears, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And he was last seen with a grey hooded jumper and Ugg boots. He had been, so they looked at things that he'd done leading up to his disappearance. He'd been to a Dalai Lama conference here in Melbourne for three days and his mum said it it sort of was helping him to understand being a young adult in his life. And the social media campaign I mentioned a moment ago spread like wildfire. They set up a website called Dan Come Home that was launched and the Facebook page for him, which at the time had, I think it had about 63,000, it still has 62,000 followers. Then November 2011, this was about four months after he disappeared, a woman called police to say that she had seen Daniel walking into a medical centre in Brisbane, a long, long way from Geelong in Victoria. And she said that he, this young man had asked for a glass of water. She thought that she recognised Daniel because she'd seen one of these TV interviews and she said he was visibly unwell and he was using his middle name, which is James. They looked at security footage and they thought that that actually backed up what she said. And so the family went to Queensland. They spent two months there in southeast Queensland looking for him. Eventually they found nothing and they had to come home again. And then in 2016, this is now five years after Daniel went missing, his dad was doing some digging around the family house on Summerhill Terrace and he found human remains. Uh, The body was in a very hard-to-get-at cavity and... At first, um, his wife said that he just couldn't bring himself to go back down there and have a good look at what it was because I think they probably knew straight away, didn't they? So the house, can I interject? Yeah. And this could be wrong, but we went to the house on the day that that happened. So the house is one of those ones that you walk in, you know, on sort of street level, but the property slopes back. Mm -hmm. So there's a, quite a large sort of wedge-shaped cavity under the house, right. if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yeah. And I believe that he, the remains were in there. In there. You're absolutely yeah. right. Um, and that explanation is actually handy because the family copped a bit of criticism. Mm. So first of all, the parents called the police. They removed the body, did the DNA test, and that to confirm that it was Daniel. They said that the fact that it was his dad that found him just add another layer to the grief. Um, They wouldn't rule out foul play at first until they were satisfied there was nothing suspicious. And a lot of people so did ask why Daniel hadn't been found. Like, it seems so obvious. Family, there's a body under your house. How Mm. do you not know? But it was actually on that Facebook page that a a family friend jumped in and explained what you just did, that the, the setup of the house, that there was... It was entirely possible. And it was cold when he went missing. It was the middle of winter. Correct. So there wouldn't have been, as you would expect, a smell or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think there was anything there. Um, his mum, her, so her name's Lorraine. She calls herself Laurie sometimes. She was really annoyed with the police. She said that 
We heard this chair squeak, it's Chanel. The There's no disguise. Sorry, I, it's the worst. I ditched my chair because yeah, it was squeaky. I know. Yours is. Uh, she was a bit critical of police. She said it was clear he that Daniel wasn't a pirate priority for them. She said that, and as she and Daniel's sister claimed that the police had barely set foot, in their words, in the family home, and they say that they would have found Daniel within 20 minutes if they'd brought sniffer dogs into the house, which they mustn't have done. Uh, she say, said in a way, I feel cheated my last act because the mother was taken away from me. If Dan had been found on the day, I would have been able to hold him and say goodbye. Um, so they did an autopsy in the end and the death was deemed as not suspicious. So there was no coronial inquest held. That was because Daniel's mother didn't want to relive the details of his death. She said she'd rather remember the good times. She said, we know all the details. Nothing will bring Daniel back. I don't have unanswered questions. We know that he took his own life and he never left home. He loved being at home with us and we had lots of happy memories in that home. He just chose to make sure that he would stay with us forever. I learned a couple of things when I was looking at this story mm-hmm. and just the whole thing of missing people and how they search for them. About 38,000 Australians are reported missing every year. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, but 98% of them are found mm. and most of them are alive and well. And here's the other thing, and I think this does vary from state to state. It certainly does in other countries, but there's this thing that you have to wait 24 hours for someone. Exactly right. You don't. Yeah, you don't have to wait 24 hours to report someone missing. If you've got concern for someone who's missing for their welfare or their health at any time, you can report them. Um, and I think it was amazing the way they handled the search for him mm. because, as I said, you just couldn't go anywhere and not have heard about them. And then it was a couple of years later, two, later 2017, Daniel's sister, Kate O'Keefe, wrote a play about the search that the family carried out. It was called Losing You Twice, the twice is in brackets. She said she wanted to shine a spotlight on the high rates of male depression and suicide in Australia. Eight Australians take their life every day and six of them are male. It's over 2,000 men a year that we lose to suicide. And she said the silence around suicide is something she's been angry about since Daniel's death and that in the silence and not talking about it enables it to keep happening. Mm. I'll just give you again the lifeline number, 13 11 14. Um, and Beyond Blue are also very helpful, 1300 22 46 36. But we'll put those numbers like we usually do up on our social media just in case you or anyone you know needs help. What do you recall about the story? Um, I recall, I guess the first thing I would say is that in the media, as in the mainstream media as journalists, we get emails every single day about people that are missing from police. Mm. Kids, teenagers, older people, all it doesn't discriminate who goes missing. And every single time we get an email or I see an email, I think, oh, yeah, yeah they'll be found. It'll be, they'll be found because, as you said, so many people are. But I can clearly remember that the ones who end up in more sinister situations, mm. I can clearly remember thinking at the start of their journey of going missing, oh, they'll be found. Mm. And then, like, so, for example, uh, Jill Ma. Yeah. Uh, who was uh, murdered by Adrian Bailey. I remember seeing the alert for her and going, oh, she'll be found, and then realising mm. this is not, this she's not going to be found. And then uh, Karen Rostevsky. Mm. I clearly remember, and I remember that her family did a plea on, you know, we really, we still haven't found her, blah, 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 and it was on a weekend. And I was at a, a different 
place to where I'm working now and the consensus was, oh, we won't bother going to that plea because she'll be found. Mm. And then we didn't go and it just kept snowballing and, you know, obviously yeah. her remains were found sometime later. But that's later. human nature, isn't it, to always look for the positive? It's yeah. why we don't see – most of us in yeah. our normal lives don't see criminal activity mm. because we don't expect people to do the wrong yeah. thing. We expect the, the good outcome and the, the I, happy outcome. I remember – when remains were found under um, the O'Keefe's home, mm. we as journalists were dumbfounded. Mm. Like there was shock throughout the whole newsroom. Why, of, why wouldn't they have taken a sniffer dogs in at the very beginning? I don't know. I don't think it's part of standard procedure because maybe because the family said he walked out. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. I, I think that is what the family said. I think, um, you know, yeah, if well, they, they said that they thought he'd gone, yeah, to perhaps with homeless so, people. And I guess I see it from the family's point of view. They're like, he was under there the whole time. Like, mm. why wasn't anyone looking properly? But then it's also the information you give police. So I, I think I understand they're not happy with police, but Victoria Police are so good at what they do. Yeah. And I always, you know, I think we have a really big mentality. Even the media has that mentality where, you know, bash the police, bash the justice system and mm. all those things. But our uh, emergency services, I think, are some of the best in the world. Oh, and they are absolutely. tireless. And I know a lot of police officers and they are, you know, I've never heard a police officer say, oh, yeah, we did a half job on that one. Wouldn't that be hard if you released a dog into that house with, with the scent of yeah. Daniel? How would it – like his yeah. scent is going to be all over the house. Well, yeah. Well, we'd need to or be a trained to find a dog. Mm, I always okay. say that. I'm weird about saying that word. But what if he Dabba. wasn't – I can't say it. What if he know. wasn't dead at the point that they sent the dog in? Yeah. I don't know. And it's interesting because uh, she speaks about being robbed, you know, of her last, yeah. being able to say goodbye. And that triggers me to another conversation that I had with – I actually spoke to – after Nico's dad – passed away, mm. I wrote a letter to the ambulance officers. There were HEMS paramedics. Mm. Uh, who, What's HEMS? Uh, helicopter emergency services. Oh, okay. He had needed to be airlifted when uh, he fell from a height. He needed to be airlifted. And I wrote a letter to the paramedics just to say, thank you so much for the mm. work you did on the ground because although he didn't survive, we got to say goodbye and hold his hand while he was warm. Mm. We didn't go into a coroner's office where he was on a steel table and, you know, yeah. and we we still got to hug him, we got to speak to him while his heart was still beating and that was really important. Yeah. So I understand and I sympathise with her mm. greatly that she feels she didn't get that because yeah. it's so important for closure. <laughs> How's what your tea that? going? What was that noise? Oh, just just a noise. Just a mm. just well, it's like my tea's know. going well. Let's let's turn to the left and, ladies and gentlemen, Chanel Vella. Thank you. So this is a story about Black Dahlia. <gasps> Do you know this story? I've heard it a million times, but I never tire of it. Oh, okay. So it's so gross. The, there's a, isn't there? A, is. There's a big podcast going at the moment about this. Don't ruin it. Sorry. We're going to do it in short form because that's okay. what we do. Now, I have to uh, credit the lovely Georgia Commonsoli who works with me mm-hmm. and she brought my attention to this and she gave me like a whole magazine full of grisly stories. I God, have it and you don't. A magazine. It's a magazine. Ooh. Mm, she left it on my desk. What a doll. Wow. Nice work, Georgia. Okay, so... Black Dahlia, her real name was Elizabeth Short. She was known to her friends as Betty. That name confused me because it's spelt B-E-T-T-E. Is that Bet or Betty? Well, it's in the middle of Elizabeth. Yeah. 
So they so call them. It's like the Queen. Is it Bet? Apparently, they call her Betty. It's Bet. Betty, right? Betty. Yeah. yeah. I looked yeah. at it for a long time last night. I was like, "That's Betty." Anyway, <laughs> I was going to look it up. Didn't. Now we're here. Anyway, so we need to go back uh, to old Hollywood glamour times because Betty lived uh, in LA, but she arrived from Massachusetts oh. in 1946. Right. So she lived in Hollywood, like. I, I guess many young women at the time, she, you know, arrived on a bus and dreamt of being an actress and she really was beautiful. What are you laughing at? No, no, I'm not laughing at anything. I'm loving it. I oh, just, I love okay. all that, that time yeah. and those Hollywood years Hollywood glamour, yes. right? I'm trying to think of an accent, but I don't have anything. Oh, I don't I know what the accent you. would be. No, I don't. I'm just a simple girl in the big city. Yes, yeah. that's what it would be. I'm just going to see what the world holds for me. Yes, exactly. Now, um, Glyn Martin, he was a former LAPD uh, officer, and he's now a historian. He told Who magazine that her story became a sad cliche um, and the ultimate warning tale for mm. women uh, heading to Hollywood. Now, at the time, she wasn't a massive movie star or anything like that, but she was a bombshell. She yeah. was gorgeous. She had this these locks and big eyes, and she was just. I've never. I don't think I've seen a picture of her like whole. Why don't you? <laughs> Sorry. Stop ruining it. ruining your thing? I'm Google gonna, it. I'm going to Google her okay. alive. While I'll you, keep talking. Yeah. Okay. So uh, she was what I call one of those really annoying girls who was pretty and nice. Right. Yeah, she wasn't a bitch. So her childhood friend said, once you saw Betty, you just could not forget her. Gorgeous and lovely. So she had many lovers in LA. Not at the same time. but Big she hair. had Yeah. Big hair. Big hair. Yeah. And they used to do that weird thing, didn't they, where they shaved their eyebrows off and then drew them on. Mm. Um, She had many lovers, not at the same time, but one of them was Robert Red Manley. And he was a married man who she spent a few days with in in the time before she went missing. Now, he says that he uh, dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel and she was last seen strolling through the lobby. Um, He... He says that she said, Mm. he said, she said that she was meeting a woman for drinks, Mm -hmm. but she was never seen again. Mm. Gone. Is the Biltmore the the one where Anna Nicole Smith was found dead? I feel like the Biltmore's like before I trash the reputation of a successful hotel. Like the Beverly Hills Hotel is like where a lot of people have died. I don't know about the the Las Vegas Hilton. Mm. You look that up. I'm going to. Now, six days later, on January 15, 1947, a woman by the name of Betty Bursinger was taking a walk through Litmert Park with her three-year-old daughter when she saw a mannequin, mannequin, split in half in a ditch. Yes. She got suspicious of this and she took a closer look and realised pretty quickly that it was a Bodet and it was Betty Short. Bodet. Now, it was mutilated, facially disfigured and cut in half. <sighs> The right. worst, yeah. Now, we're in 1947, so you have to just think about the crowd control in this time. You couldn't even tell that it was her. There were cuts across her body and her mouth had been sliced from ear to ear. That's the worst part of Isn't it. Isn't it? Yep. It's horrible. It's awful. It's, it's so like bad. It's, it's like the Joker's smile. Yes. It's, it's horrific. Oh. Uh, and when they examined her body, they determined that she'd been tortured for a really long time. They mm. knew that. But the strangest part about uh, that coroner's report was that her body had been 
completely drained of blood. So creepy, right? Mm. And it was sort of posed, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's pictures online. Mm. Google it. Now, by the time police arrived, word had... (laughs) Have. Um, Word had spread like wildfire that there was this body and it was in half and there was crowds there looking and there were journos and it was out of control. Now, Detective Harry Hansen was one of the first on scene. He said it was hard for him to even look at the body, let alone there being this massive crowd of just Mm. civilians looking at it. He believed the crime was fueled by sex but also unbelievable anger because it was so vicious. Mm. Something more, though. Reckon? The way she was posed and the mm. the cutting of the face. Like, that's it's not so killing someone, on. stab, 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 I'm no. killing you, I hate you. Yeah. That's, I'm going to muck around. And, it's gross. Ugh. The day after her death, the Los Angeles Examiner sold more copies than it ever had in its entire history. Gosh. Because people were so obsessed with how brutal the crime was, this beautiful woman. Who wants to talk and hear about death? I don't know. Really? Sickos. A lot. Pigs. How, ugh. Right? Tacky. Uh, The Herald Express received tip-offs from police contacts about the grisly details of her death, and they printed those. They also got the scoop on her ID, and they did that as an exclusive story. Mm. Now, and I've written, this is the shit side of journalism. (laughs) I've written that. You have? Oh, there it is in writing. Because I would never do this. Yes. I'm not just trying to make people like me. I would never do this shit. (laughs) So everyone was so obsessed with the story that the Herald Express sent a journalist called Wayne Sutton to her hometown of Medford, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And please remember, what year did I say it was? 1947? It's 1947. There is no internet. There are no mobile phones. So news is not travelling fast. Yes. Slow. Okay. So Wayne well, it heads is off. over that ticker tacker. It's coming slow. out on a little piece of paper with holes in it. So Wayne heads off to speak to Betty's mother. Yes, that's Phoebe how it happened in the Adams Short. family. Sorry. Correct. So Wayne's going to meet Phoebe. Right. He's off. Gotcha. Wayne doesn't tell Phoebe that her daughter is dead. Oh. And she doesn't know. Oh, you're kidding. No. <gasps> to see shit journos. He instead told her mother, that Betty had won a beauty contest and went there to pillage as much information out of her. Oh, my God. As he could. Wayne. About her daughter. Wayne, shame on you. Right? Yes. And then he told her, your daughter's dead. Oh. Mm. Oh, Who magazine called it a fire lit under journalism and all bets were off and any tactics were fair game. Wow. This they used when, to let each other's tyres down and yeah, stuff, didn't they? see. And this is yeah. where the media got grubby. They sexualised her, referring to her as, you know, a bombshell, saying it was a sex fiend slaying, and it started to get all crazy. Sometimes we do get cray. Mm. Not this cray. No. Well, anymore. they always used to give, like, a catchy name yeah. to the murder, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. You know, you have those moments where they're like, we need another story. We need to keep this going. And you're like, there's nothing left. And you do another story. But mm. you don't do this stuff to get it. Anyway, so the Los Angeles record ran the Black Dahlia case on their front page for 31 days straight. What? Yeah. It's massive, right? Wow. The story's getting, like, two, three days now. 31 days is huge. Yeah. So over this time, there were plenty of suspects and all of them were men. One of them was Dr. George Hodel. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. Why are you saying aha? Uh-huh? Because that's the 
the, the, the podcast. Bit? No, there's a oh. whole podcast series oh. of the family, his family. Okay. Well, that's interesting that, that you say him. that. Yeah. Yes. So... Uh, ruining my stories once again. He was a physician by trade, and because of that, they believed he would have the medical knowledge to undertake the procedures that were performed mm. on her. Uh, one of those uh, was revealed in the autopsy was that she wasn't just sort of hacked in half. Mm. There were precise uh, incisions made underneath her spine area mm. that would... In, enable the body to sort of break in half yeah. without actually breaking bones. So they knew that it was a very specific procedure mm. and they knew that uh, Dr. George uh, was taught that at medical school mm-hmm. in the 1930s. Now back to what you said, it was actually his son who alerted police and he even wrote a book saying that his father was the killer, mm. but it could never be proven. And uh, Dr. George died in 1999 at the age of 91. And never told anything. Never told no. anything. They also looked at Betty's relationship with a nightclub owner who had mafia links. He was madly in love with her, but the feeling was not mutual. That man's name was Mark Hansen, and the rumour was that he just couldn't stand seeing her with other men, so he kept seeing her mm. and it was killing him. And they believe that he may have told another man called Leslie Dillon to get rid of her. Her shoes and her purse were found in a bin near Leslie's home, so that obviously added suspicion. But I he was if interviewed. Were, if it was someone who was just brought in to get rid of them. Like yeah, they wouldn't he, do that. No, they would just Correct. do it quick and... Just shoot her. Yeah. Um, he was interviewed and released because there wasn't enough evidence. Now, mm. Detective Harry Hansen retired in 1968, and he says his one regret of his whole career is that they never solved her murder. Yeah. Still not solved now. Frustrating. Mm. The other thing, may I? Yeah. Um, with Hodel was that they said he had this great interest in surrealist art and that's a whole sort of part the podcast goes off on. How and she was posed? Yes, yeah. and, and the cutting of the face and, yeah. you know, when you think of all those unusual arts like the weeping woman and all that Picasso Creepy. kind of stuff. Yes, that there was something in the way the body was that he saw it perhaps had seen it as an artwork mm. that he created it, which right. it does bear thinking about because of the way the body was posed and presented and like you said, done carefully, you know. It's one of the most famous murders ever, isn't it? Isn't it? And imagine how horrifying it would have been for her. Oh. She was young. How what was she? I think she was like in her early twenties. Her poor mother. Yeah, yeah I know that. Give me all the photos you've that, got of her. And yeah, so, but then she's—that's the, probably the reason that there is a photo that we see online today oh, because it's probably mum probably proudly handed it over. Hmm. Well, Chanel, that wraps up another edition of Dead Bodies podcast. You're having trouble wrapping up for now. We'll be back. Well, we will be back. I'm just wondering if you want to do feedback, but we'll save that for another day. Sure. In, oh, in the meantime, <laughs> <laughs> we love to hear from you via Facebook, find Dead Bodies Podcast, or you can email us, deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.